one of my important moments when I was practicing uh, in my long retreat in Burma um, was um, I had been practicing for a few months there practicing on retreat a few months and um, as I did on most days I went into my the abbot's little house to have my interview and one day as I was walking in I um, through his door into his, into his room I glanced to the right and we had an altar right to the right kind of maybe about 10 feet away and on the altar there was a um, new Buddha that had been there before that I had noticed, I had noticed before he had a few, a few different small Buddhas there and um, and there was a new one there and I saw in very rapid succession I saw seeing the Buddha experiencing it as a, as a pleasant experience a pleasant sensation to see that Buddha seeing the desire for more pleasure and seeing the desire for more pleasure translate into I want that Buddha and um, normally I would have just walked in seen the Buddha and said I want it <laughs> And I wouldn't exactly know why I wanted it. But there, there were all these steps that happened very, because it happened so fast, but my mind was struck, my, was concentrated enough and still enough. I could see the building blocks, that simple process of seeing it, seeing, experiencing the pleasant of it. And then that magic moment of trying to want more pleasure. Now, it's a quite a lofty thing to want a Buddha image. It's a wonderful thing. It's a, you know, it's a great ob- religious object and all this stuff. But uh, the fact is that it wasn't some lofty inspiration that wanted me to have it. It was simply that it was a pleasant experience and I wanted more pleasure. It was that basic. And um, um, the movement of wanting pleasure, pleasantness, pleasant experience, and, and not wanting unpleasant experience is, is really foundational to much of human experience, much of human life. But it, often we don't see it at the kind of fundamental foundational level. Often we, things happen very fast in the mind, and uh, pretty soon, you know, you you want something, and you have a whole philosophical rationalization about why it's a good idea to have, and you might explain to everybody else your philosophy why it's good, but at the base, it was simply that you wanted more pleasure, and this thing provides it, or you wanted to avoid some kind of something uncomfortable. Um, so uh, some people find that as their mind gets stiller, calmer, more concentrated, that it gives them a vantage point to understand a little bit the workings of the mind that they normally can't see so quickly. So one of the things you might notice is the relationship you have to pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Your knee hurts, you have an unpleasant feeling, you have a pleasant uh, sensation in your body, your mood arises, and it isn't just something that's there in a simple way, but there's a movement towards it, away from it. There's a reaction. And the mind might start thinking, the mind might start wanting, the mind might start pushing away, not wanting, resisting. There's this reaction to it. So as the mind gets quieter and quieter, we tend to be able to see more and more clearly the difference between the pleasantness and the reaction to it. Did some of you have that experience today? Could you, were you able to get a little bit calmer than you normally would? And could you actually track as a, at the very end uh, the difference between pleasant, unpleasant, and then your reaction to it? Did you have something like that today? Anybody want to say anything about their experience of doing that? Anything unusual you saw or you simply saw it? No one's raised their hand yet. So we're just passing the mic as if <laughs> hoping someone's going <laughs> to... Catherine wants to say something about um, what you saw when you looked at the difference between pleasant, unpleasant, and then your reaction to it. The thing that I saw was a thought came up about a co-worker who I'm struggling with. And um, I saw 
It was interesting that I wanted to cling to something that was negative. Um, and then I had the thought, oh, isn't that interesting? I kind of cling to negative reactions more than I do pleasant ones. That's, so a, big, that, that's a big insight. Yeah, so that's what I noticed. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to have a negative, I mean, some negative thought, negative experience, and something else to cling to it. And then it's something else to realize that there's a preference for that or disposition towards that. Someone else? Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Nothing interesting. So the um, so one of the things I want to talk about today is um, that um, um, the relationship between vipassana and or mindfulness and concentration. And one of the, one of the ways that concent- one of the things um, one of the ways that concentration is used is it's used as a, as a platform from which to do vipassana work or insight work. When the mind is calm and concentrated, then it tends to be much more insightful. It can see more clearly things which um, in the agitated mi- that an agitated mind can't see. So teachers who emphasize concentration practice, usually at some point, will then ask the student to stop doing concentration practice and switch over to doing mindfulness or vipassana. And there's a variety of ways that that can happen. One way is to uh, just switch over and do mindfulness in the way that it's taught at Spirit Rock or taught generally around. Just note what is happening. Maybe use the breath again, but do more mindfulness in the breath rather than the concentration. Uh, And just start noticing what arises in your experience. And there's no attempt to direct it in any way. Um, Rather, it comes with choiceless awareness, noticing what's happening as it arises, and developing your mindfulness in that way. And when the mind is concentrated, then the mind won't won't wander off as much as it can if it's agitated or distractible. So once it's concentrated, you can much more be present for the arising and passing of things. And um, so just kind of open mindfulness to the experience. Some teachers will direct concentrated students to do vipassana in directed ways. So to have particular, now that you're concentrated, look for this or explore this. One of the things that people might do is do exactly what I did for you. So notice the difference between uh, the, uh, what's called the feeling tone, the vedana, the pleasant, unpleasantness of the experience and, and your reaction to it, the clinging or the grasping or the desire that arises um, right after it. And that, that um, connection between the Vedana, between the feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasantness, and our reaction, is considered to be a very, very important place for being able to cut or stop or, move or, or see through the reactive mind, the mind which is not free. So it's a very important place to discover equanimity and freedom by learning not to do anything, to be able to let go of the reaction, the, the wanting, the clinging that might arise. So some teachers will direct the students to look there. Look at that really carefully. And it can be very powerful. Other teachers might, uh, I, don't, I never heard, I know Western teachers do this, but I, in, in Asia sometimes they do this. They'll tell um, uh, students, now that you're concentrated, um, look very carefully at the sensations in your body that are arising and passing. Look for the, the, what's changeable in your experience. And just to start tuning into what is ch- always changing. So if there are kind of feelings of vibration or pulsing or flowing or you know, f- flashing in and out of existence, different sensations, then start looking at what is impermanent, what is changing. And then and get yourself, use, use your ability to get absorbed, to get absorbed in those sensations which are arising and passing. So that more and more what your experience is, is that of things arising and passing. And because you're concentrated, you can get absorbed in that. And because you're concentrated, you can see that much more precisely. The normal kind of street mind cannot notice the, the phenom- phenomenal um, my, uh, uh, subtlety 
by which physical sensations then rise and pass, or mental sensations then rise and pass all the time. The dance of our sensations. So that's something, that's something they might look at. So other teachers might direct the students uh, to look at, um, at what's called dukkha, or stress, or suffering. Look at the places, even when the mind is very, basically you feel have a, lot, a strong sense of well-being because the person's quite concentrated. Now t- look in, in that field of well-being, look for the places where there's some stress or some tension, where there's still a little bit discomfort. And the discomfort might be very, very minute, minute but look for it. Uh, smell it out, tune it out. And because that is where the cutting edge of your practice is, the, because that's where the suffering is, and see if you can let go of it or relax it or work through it. The more refined the mind is, the more concentrated the mind is, the more what's left in terms of tension um, represents or is connected to some of the deepest attachments that we carry in our, in our minds and hearts. So the concentrated mind lets us to access some of the deepest places of holding. And the way to connect to it is to feel or sense the tension that's there, the pressure or the unsatisfactoriness that might be there. Now, in some very deep states of concentration, the suffering or the unsatisfactoriness is not very strong. Or, it's not, not, you know, as compared to everyday life, it's not, not, nothing much at all. But it might be, you have to kind of, you're tuning into that part of your experience to purify that also, as a, as a continue the process of letting go that leads to liberation. Other teachers will uh, direct uh, students to um, do more thematic uh, uh, forms of vipassana. So, for example, uh, study or look at your experience from the point of view of what's called the 12-fold chain of dependent origination. I'm not going to go into that now, but there's a very, those of you who know it, there's a very big t- uh, a teaching around what's called the 12-fold chain of dependent origination. It's a way of analyzing our experience. So look at the experience through that filter. Other teachers might say, okay, now look, through, look at it through the filter of the Four Noble Truths. Really use to apply that to your experience. Or some teachers will say, um, look at the arising of self. Uh, self-concept, self-identity, self-clinging. Now really tune into that. Where is, where is the self? Some teachers will, will give the students the question, uh, who am I? And you, and you kind of look at it. And generally you're not supposed to find anything, but, but you, kind of, you, you, know, you kind of do something more thematic. You're looking and looking and looking. Um, so the, 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 the concentration practice becomes a platform for doing a variety of different kinds of ways of doing vipassana. There's not just one form of vipassana practice, which is um, most people introduce just to one form. There's actually a variety. My, we, um, in, um, um, so all, the, all this is possible if you're doing a lot of concentration practice. Some people don't develop concentration to the point of getting deeply absorbed, going into the jhanas that we talked about last week, but only will do concentration, do concentration practice to the point that the mind is no longer easily distracted. So the mind is stabilized, so it's easy to be here. So you sit down to meditate, and you find that the mind is just really wild, and uh, you can't hardly stay present. Some people will find that that's the time to do some kind of concentration practice. Very simple, kind of working with the breath or doing loving kindness until the mind is no longer just easily distracted. You kind of hear and arrive. And then they'll let go of the concentration practice and start the mindfulness practice. Um, Some people uh, will wait much longer and do a lot of concentration practice, uh, get really deeply absorbed, and then at some point, uh, you know, work on the Vipassana practice and switch. Um, generally, sooner or later, a student needs to switch from doing concentration practice to doing vipassana or mindfulness. The idea in Buddhism is that enlightenment comes from vipassana practice, not from concentration practice. So that, um, so that if you stay with the concentration practice only, you'll stay limited. And you have to somehow be able to switch into another other mode of being with our experience, looking at our experience. Um,
Now, one of the important things to realize about concentration is that concentration is a, the capacity to be concentrated and the experience of being concentrated are constructed phenomena. And all constructed phenomena are impermanent. So, and so concentration tends to have a lifetime. So, or, or the concentrated state tends to have a lifetime. If you develop a strong concentrated mind through a lot of practice, and then you start practicing, you, that muscle is going to wither. You have to keep, keep that muscle going. If um, you develop concentration and you're able to get concentrated, uh, you're not going to stay concentrated. Sooner or later, it's going to fade away. And I know a lot of people who suffer, a lot of meditators who suffer, because they expect their concentration to be stable once they get there. Thinking, well, now that I got it, it's not supposed to go away. And um, uh, so, for some people, a good concentrated state might last for five minutes. Sometimes it might last for half an hour. Sometimes it might last for longer. But sooner or later, it will uh, fade away. And it, it's very important to realize that it's impermanent so we don't get anxious and upset when it starts fading away. But rather, kind of take that as part of the part of the course of what happens. Kind of be very relaxed about it and just kind of go with it. And say, okay, I was concentrated for a while. Now I'm not. So now I, to, I need to shift. Maybe I need to, if I'm on retreat, okay, now maybe it's the time to do walking meditation or to change what I'm doing. Um, uh, or to switch back to mindfulness practice or just continue what I'm doing but not be upset because I'm not have this deep level of concentration. The... the um, the real key to developing strength in a meditation practice, whether it's concentration practice or mindfulness practice, is continuity of practice. So pr- having some continuity of practice, I think, I think I talked about. So practicing every day on a regular basis. And the other is whenever you're meditating, whenever you're practicing, to give it your best effort. And your best effort is not supposed to be, say this way, the best effort that's available at that particular time. Your best effort is not, is always situational. So when you're tired, your best effort doesn't look as good as when you're really alert. If you have just had some tragedy in your life, your best effort at being concentrated is not going to look as, as good as when everything's going really well in your life and you feel really calm and settled. Your best effort, but what's important is you, gi- you give it the best effort that's available. Not that your effort looks like it matches some high standard. And it's the continuity of giving it your best effort which bears fruit over time. It is not having a very deep concentration all the time, but rather you're giving the best you have. So, sitting uh, regularly, meditating on a regular basis, and then not being complacent, not, not pushing too much, not being too, real, too complacent about the practice, too lazy, but giving it the best that you have is available at that time. It's one of the things that bears fruit. The other thing that to, to do with um, concentration, to the degree to which you can get concentrated, and um, especially if you if you uh, can get you know really well concentrated, uh, it's really helpful to try to extend the calm or the concentrated state that you're in as you get out of meditation, as you leave meditation. So don't think of it as something that has to stay only for meditation. You open your eyes and then you just jump up and, you know, jump in your car and go somewhere. But see if you can kind of stay in that subjective state of being calm, settled, you know, whatever the feelings you are of being concentrated. See if you can keep it going as you start, as you get up from meditation for a while. So you're kind of, ex- kind of extending that period of time into your life. The monk uh, uh, Tanisra Bhikkhu ta- talked here a few weeks ago he gave an analogy for this, which I thought was kind of nice. And that is, um, if you uh, go up, um, uh, if you take the work of going up, uh, climbing up a ladder 
to the second floor of a building. Uh, when you get to the second floor and you've done your work up there and time to leave, uh, you don't just jump out the window to go back. Uh, but you know, you kind of go down slowly down the ladder. So the same thing kind of with meditation. If you get yourself into a, a nice state of calm or relaxation or concentration in meditation, um, if you just kind of blow it away, just get up from meditation and start what you can do next, it's like jumping out the window. But to see if you can kind of extend the sense of being peaceful, at ease, open, relaxed. Work, 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 work the edges of that. And if you do that, um, it does two things. It will continue developing that capacity for being concentrated or being peaceful. It'll help you to stabilize it. And it also helps you understand what it is that takes you away from that. What are the forces in your own psyche that trigger you to get anxious, to speed up, to lose track of your presence? What is it that gets you caught? And if you can, the more you can be aware of what gets you caught, the more wiser you can be about the world of caughtness. And the wiser you are about the world of caughtness, the easier it is to meditate, to get concentrated again, to come back to a still place. So leaving meditation is important, how you do it, to do it in a careful careful way and try to stay present. So now it's your turn. I've talked a lot. And I think last, t- last week we didn't have much questions. So now it's the end of the five weeks. And so this is your chance uh, to ask questions of anything that seems relevant that I haven't covered or wasn't clear or questions from your own experience of doing the concentration practice. Yes. Oh, if, you, if you could use the mic here, it's coming. You had talked earlier about um, using this concept of joy, and um, as I've been trying to work that into my practice, I'm finding that uh, I'm finding a little bit that it's that it's working, but I'm also finding that there's a kind of effort that I'm a little self-conscious about. Um, it seems a little contrived to be able to hold it for any length of time. What do you mean by contrived? Well, I don't know if that's the right word, but it just it seems to take a lot of energy to hold on to the joy for any length of time. I think what it is is that in the past I've seen meditation as being a state where I'm relaxed whereas this isn't that. This is having to come up with energy to maintain joy for for being concentrated. Can you say a little bit about how you maintain that joy? How do you experience the joy and what do you do to maintain it? It's partly um, an energizing feeling in my body. I notice myself smiling a little bit and my posture being more erect. So it's also partially a f- physical exertion mm-hmm. and I have kind of a mental image of the way you describe joy as being a combination of happiness with anticipation <laughs> uh-huh. so uh, you might uh, <coughs> you might continue for a while see if, if uh, in continuing with the way you're doing it the contrived way you're doing it whether you can whether you can get more concentrated more absorbed more present less distracted, just really here. And then at some point, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the, when the point will be, uh, then see if you can relax, let go. And in the letting go, maybe letting go into the joy or letting go into some subjective experience of concentration or letting go into the breath, if that's what you're focusing on. And, and relaxing and, um, and see what happens then. And... Um, um, it might be that uh, you'll fi- have even more joy 
if you kind of kind of kind of prepared you to let go into it more fully, and it's much more peaceful in it. The other possibility is that um, maybe it is too forced what you're doing, and so uh, maybe maybe you want to stop doing it. But that as you develop the concentration in a more relaxed way, in the way you're familiar with, some uh, some of the same symptoms will arise, but they kind of come in through the back door rather than being contrived. And then you'll recognize them, and then you can kind of like just have them help you along and let them grow. Does that make sense to you? Someone else, please. In back, Gail. Um, see if you can clear up some confusion that uh, um, the, my I was reading last night in the book that um, the seventh and eighth. Um, is this all? Oh, okay. You have to hold it closer to your mouth and, and you hold it vertically. Oh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. So, um, the seventh um, um, part of the path is mindfulness, and the eighth one is concentration. Um, so, I'm, I was wondering about your statement that um, mindfulness is considered, I mean, awakening or enlightenment is considered coming out of mindfulness and not concentration um, in that concentration is the, is the last step of the path and um, also last week you were talking about the yanas, the different states of consciousness and um, I was under the impression that all of those were um, stages coming out of concentration practice the, the jhanas are stages of concentration practice and, and the, the classic definition of the, eight, of, the <coughs> of the concentration factor of the Eightfold Path, the last step, is developing the jhanas, is developing these absorptions, the states. Um, now, um, I don't know if we necessarily have to see the, the what's called the Eightfold, uh, eightfold Path as being a linear sequence. Uh, these are just the eight aspects, the eight wings, or the eight component parts of the path. So that's one thing to say. Some people do see it kind of as a sequence. And some people uh, will say that uh, mindfulness um, is very helpful as a foundation for doing concentration practice. But um, once the concentration is strong enough, um, there has to be some kind of insight, some kind of seeing that... Um, that does that somehow lets the mind let go, and that seeing is the insight practice. Another way of saying this is that um, mindfulness and vipassana are not synonymous. We often we often call them as, uh, we often treat them as the same thing, because we use the word vipassana for what we do. Uh, mindfulness is the um, is the mind's ability to know what is happening, to recognize what's happening in a careful way. Um, Vipassana is when the mindfulness has, 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 has at, at a strong enough level of concentration that it's seeing the three characteristics. So sooner or later there has to be a yoking together, joining together of concentration and mindfulness. And it, it, um, the, uh, there has been in the history of Buddhism, as, and often the way I, you know, I talked here in this, this class, a feeling that there's a strong s- distinction between mindfulness practice and concentration practice. But uh, in deep practice, I, I think that it's not so useful to think of them as being so s- separate from each other. You need a very strong level of concentration in order to do mindfulness practice deeply. And you need a certain level of strong mindfulness in order to do concentration practice. So, um, um, and the other thing is that us, um, um, some of the experiences that happen as you go through the jhanas in concentration practice will also happen at maybe a little different uh, uh, degree, different degree of intensity as a person goes through very deep vipassana practice. 
some of the same sequences or some of the factors come into play. So I think it's not so useful to kind of you know see the eightfold path as being the, the eighth the concentration is definitive end of the path. Is that, I don't know if that's satisfying for you as an answer. So Gail in the back. This is very related. Um, just trying to get that difference um, a little bit more. In, in mindfulness, the instruction is often just to, to be aware, for instance, of what this breath is like. Uh, in, in when I'm doing this practice, it doesn't seem different from that. So I'm, I'm just, in other words, when, when I'm concentrating on the breath, I am aware of, of each breath as it comes, and I'm interested in, in what each breath is like. How is that not mindfulness? Mm-hmm. Is mindfulness yeah. when, you, when you just let whatever arises, you're willing to just let anything arise and to go away from the breath? No, not necessarily. Okay. Um, uh, the, breath, the breath can be both an object of mindfulness and an object of concentration. And there's kind of an overlap. So if you're using the breath as an object of mindfulness, it also tends to help developing a concentration. But the difference, uh, if you want to distinguish between mindfulness and concentration here, would be um, when you're doing concentration practice, you, you might actually know the details of what the breath experience is like. You're just holding the breath at the, you're holding the attention at the breath, at the experience of breathing. You're just holding it there, not allowing it to slip off. Just staying there, staying there, staying there. At the end of your session of meditation, you might be very concentrated, but you haven't really learned much about the breath. You haven't seen great detail. So, so it's like if, you, if, you, if you're looking out a window at, a, at, a, at snow falling, if you're a concentration practice, it would be just like holding the attention and watching the flow of the snow going down. Just kind of staying there, right there. You're not going to get distracted at all. You're just absorbing that flow going down. And mindfulness practice, you're really trying to get really close and seeing really what's going on there. And you might see this, the, the, deep, the, 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 the differences between the different snowflakes. You really see the snowflakes, each snowflake for what it is in itself. Um, whereas concentration practice, you, um, you know, you're not trying to know anything. As concentration practice gets stro- really strong, um, there is a... Um, um, uh, sometimes um, what we're focusing on is conceptual and not experiential or not immediate. So in Vipassana we stay in the real world, non-conceptual world. Sometimes in, in strong concentration practice um, you're no longer focusing on what's the real world. So, for example, um, one classic practice for developing concentration is called kasina practice. And kasina practice is where you have a, dis, a, a, a dish or a, or a disc of different colors. And then you focus on that disc um, uh, uh, so much that if you close your eyes, there's an after image. And then you focus on the after image. So you're not trying to see the, um, the, the disc more and more carefully what it is, but you're actually trying to, then you have this concept, this idea, this after image kind of, and you're trying to hold the mind really still and get absorbed in that after image. Some teachers that teach concentration will have the students stay uh, watching, uh, kind of watching the breath at the nostril, but they're not, they tell the students, don't focus on what the sensations are. Don't get into the details of that's heat and that's cold and all that. Just hold the mind right there until a white light arises at the tip of your nostril. And that's called, that, that white light is called a nimitta. And uh, so some teachers focus on what's called this nimitta. And then, and then if it's just a, a pale light, ignore it and keep staying with the breath. And then at some point when it gets really bright, then you leave the, um, the breath and you focus on that bright light, which is kind of like an after image or some people, in Buddhist terminology, they sometimes call it like a concept. Uh, so it's not really the experience. It's more like something the mind is creating. 
the function of concentration. Um, so with, um, <coughs> when, you, when you develop <coughs> very strong concentration in the breath um, and going into the jhanas, uh, for many people at some point the breath disappears. And what they're really concentrating on at some point is um, something like a nimitta. Maybe nimitta is not a, like white light, but it might be a feeling of, of beauty or feeling of a lot of pleasure or joy that arises. And so again, that's kind of a created aspect of, of uh, experience. So, but, but the simple difference is that in concentration, you're not necessarily trying to know what the experience is. You're trying to hold it there. So it's an anchor for the holding the mind still. And in some ways, concentration practice, practice is really stupid because it's not trying to, it's just trying to hold the mind there. Just keep it there in a, in a wise way, in a soft way, but keep it there. And then everything else will fall away. And then at some point, uh, you'll get concentrated. And so the, 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 the dumber you can be in some ways, the easier it is. Because if you're trying to analyze and figure and judge and manipulate and think about your taxes, you know, it's not going to happen. But if you kind of just, okay, I'll just, teacher told me to stay there, I'll just stay there. Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. is kind of along the same lines but then when you it feels to me like when you are getting very absorbed um, and the breath kind of falls away and you're just there with that very spacious still feeling how is that different from mindfulness I mean is, doesn't it just become a mindfulness state at that point it could be and people people some people um, kind of will naturally or kind of on their own just move over to mindfulness um, and what's going on but if you want to develop your concentration further, then you don't. Then you want to maybe. Then you find something to, that you can focus in a one-pointed way on in your experience. So if the breath disappears, then is there something else? And um, there might be uh, some feeling of, of pleasure in the body, some feeling that's really some really nice feeling, and then you can kind of focus on that nice feeling and develop your one-pointedness there. Um, if um, if if a person if the breath has disappeared and um, you're in a jhana, then um, uh, you need to talk to a teacher probably. Mm-hmm. But again, you can focus on the jhanic factors and try to st- try, you know, notice you know, if, if some of the jhanic factors like the, the joy is there, then work the joy, uh, pervade it through the body. Pervading it is one of the instructions. And, and so you work it and pervade it through your body so it really gets strong and stable. If the joy has passed away and it's happiness in the third jhana, then you can do the same thing. Try to pervade the, ju- the happiness throughout your body, stabilize and really make it strong. And, um, and if uh, the happiness fades away and it's this powerful state of equanimity, the same thing. If it makes sense, if it makes sense to do that, you can try to do, stabilize and work it. If you're just getting concentrated and it kind of, it's not a jhana, just kind of, you're somewhat concentrated and your mind's not really wandering away, and it feels very open and spacious, you might be at, at access concentration. And so then you have a choice of whether you want to do vipassana practice at that juncture or that you want to do more concentration practice. Along those lines, what role does intuition play in knowing? Do you use intuition to know? feels like now's the time to go to Mindfulness. What, you, what do you mean by what do you mean by intuition? Well, sometimes when I'm sitting, I'm there, and I have a. I guess for me, it feels it's a feeling, mm-hmm. and it feels as if I should do a certain thing, and it feels really clean, mm-hmm. and I've been following that, mm-hmm. and but then later I think maybe I shouldn't do that. So when we talk about shifting to mindfulness practice, I don't know if I should do that if I have the feeling that now's the time maybe to do it. I think I think it's fine to it's fine to use intuition, whatever you know, whatever that is for you, whatever that means you know. And uh, I think it's good to check it out. Intuition should always be double checked first, so just kind of automatically act on it. Oh, it's intuition. I should just do it. 
Um, but uh, but to check it, is it, is it clean? You know, does it, does it feel right? And um, so I think it's fine. So you know, I think a lot of the the unfolding of practice is through trial and error. And part of the 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 prompting of trial is intuition, and you try something out and see what the consequences are, what the results are. You might, if 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 what you're setting yourself to do, setting yourself down to do is. Um, um, you know, and sometimes you might not, you might do trial and error and not give into, not give into your intuition and see what that's like. And uh, and uh, but yeah, it seems fine. To, if, as long as you learn from your experience, and uh, then your intuition will get better and better. My other question has to do with ethics. Um, you mentioned that that some teachers say go back to that as a foundation to yes. cultivate concentration. Well, not so much to cultivate it, but um, it's um, uh, if you, if, you, if your ethic if your ethics are really off, it's hard to get concentrated. And so sometimes, if um, and, and what I said was, some teachers say that you cannot get into even access concentration unless you're ethically clean, clean enough. I don't know exactly you know where the line is, uh, but. Um, um, so I, I don't know how you know how it works. You know, I, don't, I, I feel shy to generalize how it is for everybody, but I think that um, to some degree, you need to have your ethical life clean in order to get concentrated. How co- have wise, useful concentration? How clean that is may vary from different people. So if you've ro- robbed banks recently, you're probably not going to get concentrated. You know, or or you sit down to meditate just after after having done this horrendous lie to your best friend. It's probably going to hide it hard and get concentrated. But um, so you have to kind of make you know make sure you have you know you develop a um, you know somewhat, somewhat clean. And for some people, um, you know they might have to go back and clean up some parts of their life. They kind of as the mind gets more and more relaxed, it bumps up against the places where the mind is not relaxed. And so what does it take to relax those places? And if those places have to do with ethics. What does it take to relax those places in the mind? And sometimes it means you have to call someone up, or you have to make amends, or it means you have to change how your behavior, or your something, so the mind can be relaxed enough. Because the, the mind has to be relaxed in order to get really deeply concentrated. And if part of your mind is not relaxed, you've got to work on it. So that's, that's where some, someone might say, oh, you should stop meditating for a while. I think you have to go home and work something out. All the way in the back. I have a couple of different um, comments or questions. I'm not even quite sure what they are. One, again, getting back to this distinction between concentration and mindfulness. So... For me, the experience of concentration is very relaxing, maybe because it is so dumb, whatever. But when I switch over to mindfulness, it's more agitating because I can feel that I'm searching for words to try to describe whatever I'm feeling or thinking or even even the word planning or thinking. It's, it's, it moves me into a different realm. Right. And... Um, and, and I'll notice that that's not, I have more aversion to that than the concentration because that feels just so good. Uh-huh. So, um, so I'd, I'd like you to comment on that. And then also as a follow-up to that, when you said to switch over to the mindfulness, is there some point you let go of that too? And then you're, are you back into that sort of state that you get into sometimes with concentration that you're no longer in that realm of words or thinking. You're just in a being kind of realm. So Okay. That's good. So, um, um, uh, often um, uh, concentration practice tends to be more relaxing and refreshing restful than mindfulness practice. So sometimes when people do a lot of mindfulness practice, sometimes they're instructed if they're getting tired from doing the mindfulness 
to, uh, to go and uh, spend some time doing concentration practice to get the rest. And then when you're rested, come back and do mindfulness. Part of the function, one of the usefulness of concentration practice is to get that kind of rest. Um, now, um, um, it's, it's, it's common enough for people who have done a concentration practice first, before doing mindfulness, to feel a little bit like, oh, this is, this, my mind is now coarser than it used to be in meditation. It doesn't feel as satisfying. Some of that is, uh, is um, just the awkwardness of le- learning a new skill. So if you spent your whole life walking and that's really smooth and easy, you can get where you want to go easily, and then you've, so finally someone gives you a bike to ride, and the first day on the bike you're really wobbly, just like, and you're really sore, it takes a lot of muscles, and you know, just like, it's really hard to ride that bicycle. You say, well, why should I ride a bicycle? You know, I can walk. But if you ride the bicycle for a couple of days, pretty soon you can ride it without using your hands. It's really easy. It's actually easier than walking. So it's, it takes a while to learn a skill. So with a mental noting, if you're using mental noting of your experience, um, it's, uh, sometimes it takes a while to get the hang of it to become kind of smooth and easily, easy, kind of second nature almost. And so some of the agitation that comes from using it falls away. Uh, also, it's, um, it depends, you know, uh, you might, might need to look a little bit at how you're being mindful. If you're uh, uh, making commentary about your experience, maybe that is too complicated. And maybe, in order, maybe you can make it more simply. Maybe it's just a, a one-word label and not a commentary about your experience. Keep it really simple. Some people who do, uh, uh, even, uh, some people uh, do mindfulness practice without doing labeling without doing, using words at all. And um, uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's an option to do both ways, to do it more silently, but there's kind of silent seeing of the experience. And there's the option of viewing it with very quietly, very soft whispers in the mind, labeling your experience as you're doing it, using the mental noting. And um, I've heard one teacher, like Joseph Goldstein or someone say, that his experience at IMS is that the people who tend to note as a, as a group tend to go further in the practice and as a group, the people who don't. But, that's, but individuals are, you know, there's a wide, wide range of difference within indivi- in individuals within each group. So for some people, the, the noting just never works and they can go really far without noting. Um, and... Um, and some people, noting works really well. Like for me, noting was really fantastic. I mean, it really helped my practice and really kept me on track. Um, uh, and um, some people uh, as, uh, will do, do the noting and um, uh, only when the mind is not so concentrated. And once the concentration comes from... The mindfulness practice will produce concentration. So once the mind is quite still or concentrated in doing the mindfulness mm-hmm. practice, then they'll stop doing the noting. Some people will only note certain things. They'll only note, it, they'll only note if there's thinking going on. Because somehow that's... Or some people only, I know, I've known have only noted sensations. I mean, the, the feeling tone, vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, you know, there's different kind of... There's kind of like, it's like an art. And so different, some different people use the art form in different ways. Um, the noting is not so important in and of itself. What's important is that there's a clearly, you're clearly seeing or sensing what that experience is really like. So, um, uh, uh, so you know, if I hold up this bell, what's important is not that you label this a bell, but rather you see very clearly the roundness of it, the color of it. You, know, you actually see kind of the sensation level, what this actually is. Uh, calling it bell might actually make it easier for you to, to stay there, keep the mind there and really stay focused as opposed to the mind thinking about your taxes. You know. Is this helpful? It is. I have a follow-up question though, if that's okay, to yeah. probably both the mindfulness <coughs> noting and then the concentration. With the mindfulness noting, how accurate or how how detailed are you trying to be, or do you just have a couple of words that you just use? You know, um. it'll ch- it probably uh, uh, for uh, for some people. So there's no one way in which this unfolds for people. So different different people, uh, it uh, the practice unfolds a little bit differently. So you have to kind of find your own way. 
So, but some people find that um, 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 there are certain times when accuracy is really helpful, and it just it really helps us not be caught by it. Kind of certain freedom that can come by, by really acknowledging what it is an accurate label. And sometimes uh, the label accuracy is not important at all. The main function of the, of the label is just kind of nudging the mind to stay present. And there are times in my practice where I've used the note ye- yes for everything that's happening. Just say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes when my mind has been really, really concentrated and still, um, I've just grunted at everything. Just kind of in a quiet little whisper in the back of the, mm, mm. Just kind of just acknowledging being there for it. And, and um, so it doesn't have to be accurate. It just kind of, you know, just what keeps you there. And one last question, then I'll pass this along. And this has to do with the concentration. I notice that when I'm really deeply concentrated, at times it's a wonderful place to problem solve because, you, but I'm serious, like, yeah, you know, yeah. solutions come that when I'm too busy or whatever, I can't see them. Or So what I'm asking, do you sometimes sit down and get concentrated in order to do problem solving, that it's not attached to doing meditation at all? Yes. Okay. So it doesn't confuse you. As long it, as your intention is clear of that sitting, right. then right. it's... As long as it's really clear and, 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 uh, and um, yeah, really clear. So, um, but, if you're, if you're, but if your intention is to meditate and not to problem solve, then um, the practice is working really well if it, if it gets you to the point where you're creative. Something's working really well, but if you get off the train to do the creative creative work, then you've lost opportunity to continue the momentum of that good work to take you further. Therese. So um, I guess I don't understand the, the whole mindfulness thing because when you're doing the noting, it's it's always the same thing, like. Either there's pain or an itch, or so how how is this helping you in your life? Because if I'm going to note something, I want to note something that's going to come up. Like if perhaps I did something wrong in the day and need to make amends, or you know what I mean? It's like you're only noting sensations and pain or stuff with your body. It, it has nothing to do with in the real world so when does it when does practice like all of this mindfulness help you in the real world is it mm-hmm. like you're outside and you can just know when you're upset or so so maybe maybe uh, I mean I don't I don't do much noting in daily life I tend to use noting in meditation not so much in daily life sometimes I'll, I'll use it um, but I'll, I'll uh, if, you, if, we, if we use if we substitute the word noticing for mindfulness your, capaci- your ability to notice what's happening in meditation will, do two th- will bring a number of benefits in daily life. One is, it's like a muscle or a habit that you're developing. So that as you develop the habit of noticing the present moment more and more in meditation, then you're more likely to notice what's happening in the present moment outside of meditation. And, um, it's, you know, and that's, as long, if you're noticing what's happening in the present moment in daily life, it's really helpful. Because... You know, if you if you know if you, uh, if you if you're not noticing what's happening around you, or within you, you, all kinds of unfortunate things can happen. So how do you know when you're not noticing? Because what if you're noticing? Like, you know what I mean? You can't tell like if you're asleep out there or if you're. If you're asleep, you can't tell. See, if you're really asleep and you lost your mindfulness, then there's there's no hope for you while you're in that state. I mean, if you're too, too, too lost to even know that you're not mindful, I mean, it's no hope. Um, but but sooner or later, you'll notice that's the case. And that's when the practice begins. Oh, I was lost for the last five minutes. Okay, let me, let me try to be present now. And then you try to wake up and be present. Um, but if you're really lost, you know, my understanding of being lost is you're so lost you can't even... You don't even know you're lost. So in when which you're ca- doing which case both, when you, when you say you have to switch over, I don't 
think that I um, consciously switch over it just like you just I don't know what I'm doing I think I'm doing both together or something like that mm -hmm. and it doesn't make any because you still pay attention to your posture and to your you try not to move and you you know like if if you want to move your hair you, you you know what I mean you note that or something so but I started out doing concentration I don't quite follow it. Like you sit down, you say you're going to do concentration, right. and then I guess when I'm concentrated, like if I have pain in my knee, I just say pain. Yeah. And then I, and I don't deal with it. I don't. I try not to move. Right. So you, you so you're, you're so you're mixing up a little bit of mindfulness with the concentration practice. That's fine. I think it's I think to some degree you, they they work together. They support each other. Uh, but if you want to get really concentrated at some point, uh, you know, if you're concentrating on the breath you would simply let the pain in your leg recede in the background and you, you, know, you wouldn't be aware of it anymore. Oh, if you were really concentrated. Okay. And, some, and some, one strategy to get concentrated is to ignore certain things like that. So sometimes we have a very strong habit to be concerned about pain. So the mind goes there and then we note it and do mindfulness. But if it's possible, one strategy for getting concentrated is just ignore the pain within reason, of course, so that you can stay on track with the concentration, with the focus on the breath, for example. Here, over here on the stage. So we're, we're going over now. It's almost 15 minutes after nine. And let me say this, that um, I just want to thank you all for coming. I hope it's been useful, the class. And... Um, and I'm happy at other times to answer other questions. And if you do the concentration practice and try it for a while, if you want to come and talk about your experience, you can certainly come and talk to me or talk to other teachers. It's always good to talk about your experience. So I just want to thank you. And um, so I'll continue taking questions for a while. If some of you want to quietly leave at any point now, at this, uh, you're welcome to do that. You don't, have to, you don't have to be a captive audience. So please. The question I have isn't really... Um, is it really part of so much concentration practice? It's on. You have to hold it like this. Yeah. I was actually not wanting to use a microphone. That's probably. <laughs> um, it's not so much the concentration practice itself, but lately I can pick up a lot of other people's energy more than normal. Um, like I can perceive it, and I can. I don't know, it's somewhat it has its fortunate aspect and it's unfortunate. And um, I'm not really clear on how to work with that. So this is not really a question. So it can be a question related to this because the energy sometimes sticks a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, because if somebody has really strong negative energy, I don't, I definitely feel the strong, I can't be with this energy, like it's really intense for me, right. more than before, like I sat, number, yeah. whatever. So I don't know how, and also, I can also sense people's judgments, and that is also really, I don't know, what, sometimes I've gone after it, like tried to work with them about it, and sometimes I don't really know what to do. So those are two examples that if you yeah. <laughs> wanted to walk me through what I would do with them, that would be really helpful to me. Well, it's a big, big topic. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it now. But I think it's uh, 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 what you were talking about is everybody has some experience of that, and uh, just a matter of degree. And so, but as people get uh, more concentrated or develop mindfulness or other th other, for other reasons, some people develop a very heightened sensitivity to the issues of, of energy or, or, or emotional feelings or projections or judgments, as you said, feelings people have. And, um, and it, but, but just like anybody, uh, people have to make a decision, you know, is this comfortable to be with this person or not? And am I capable of being around this person without it being, you know, uh, pushing me over the edge in some way or making me feel too lousy? And so sometimes we decide, you know, this person, you know, it's just too painful to be around this person because it just, you know, and so then sometimes we pull back. Um, other times it might not be too painful, but we decide, oh, maybe I can work with this. Maybe I need to develop more mindfulness. Maybe I have to look at the ways in which that person's ex uh, experience, that, that person's way of being, 
um, judgments of me even, because people do judge each other a lot. I mean, the world's full of judgments. Um, can, w- what does it take for me to uh, not be concerned about that? Not to care whether someone likes me or not like me. To find that freedom. And, you know, and so r- rather than seeing it as a problem out there, See, you know, what, what, what's the what's the what's the button that's being pushed in me, and can I, or what's the hook, and can I straighten out that hook? Yeah, I uh, just wanted to ask a general question about practice in general it's it's my understanding that to the extent that we can that we 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 uh, carry on the practice throughout the day uh, in trying to be aware of what's going on and does that mean that let's say for example we're driving and we're going someplace and perhaps we're thinking a little bit about what we're going to do when we get there and maybe also we have the radio on and so we're hearing stuff. Now, does that mean that would good Buddhist practice say, well, uh, we want to limit what's going on so we can easily, more easily be aware of what's happening? In other words, turn the radio off. Don't plan about what you're going to do and, until, in other words, limit your activity so that whatever it is that you're doing, you can be more aware. Or do you just, Kind of like do what you would naturally do. Uh, are you, a, a, another example might be you could be in the shower. Normally, when I t- take a shower, I start singing. Just, but that's now. Now I have to be aware of two things. I mean, if I'm a good Buddhist, I have to be aware of my singing and and washing myself. Uh, uh, yeah. This may, might sound ridiculous, but I'm trying to yeah. get some kind of a handle on. Do you modify your lifestyle? to make it easier to be aware of what you're doing. Yes. But, uh, but you have to be careful of what you do. Um, you have to you know, be wise about it. So uh, um, uh, I hope you don't stop singing in the shower. It sounds like it's a nice thing. It's a joyful thing. It's maybe a really nice, nice moment in your day. But, um, but don't do that. If you go on a meditation retreat, uh, don't sing in the showers then because then you, your time is better spent just showering. And, de- and continuing to develop the mindfulness practice, just, just okay. Um, with the radio in the car, uh, you can experiment with again. You can experiment and see what serves you the best. Do you arrive where you're going more present, more calm? Uh, if you turn off the radio and stop thinking about the n- tomorrow, and just stay and drive, what's the most useful way to arrive? And I noticed that for me that um, I find a certain pleasure in listening to the radio, and sometimes I'm a little bit seduced by that pleasure. But, but if, I, um, if I'm really honest or really notice carefully, I actually arrive in a much more satisfying state if I don't listen to the radio in the car. Actually, you know, so, you know, it's like the moment, there's this momentary satisfaction, pleasure of the radio. But if I let go of that momentary satisfaction, it allows a certain kind of deepening of presence, of beingness. It's very satisfying. And, um, and so I've learned that tends to be a lot better for me. It also depends what you want to do with your life. So if, if uh, so again, this question on retreat, if in retreat you're there because you're trying to develop mindfulness, but then you want to try to modify as much of your life as possible to really support that direction. And then in daily life, what is the purpose of your life? What is important for you? And if developing mindfulness is, is really important, then what is what are you willing to modify so you can so you can uh, so that you can uh, strengthen its growth? And um, and then, but you want to make sure you have a balanced life, because if you start feeling grim, because you're not living a balanced life, that's not good. So maybe then you start singing and shower again, so you can get more, a little more balance. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. We have Daniel since uh, he hasn't since he hasn't asked yet. I'd like to get a clarification about uh, loving kindness as a concentration practice. 
I heard you say earlier that it helps you be present, helps one be present who practices that. And that doesn't tell me anything that's distinct from many other things that help one be present or be more concentrated. So, so I wanted to know why, why is loving kindness in particular singled out as a constant, uh, something to do for concentration? As opposed to? As opposed to other, other, there are other methods that help one be present and be more concentrated. Yeah, there's lots, lots of things. I mean, classically in Theravada Buddhism, there are 40 classic uh, objects for concentration practice. So there's a lot of things you can use. You can use almost anything, you know, for concentration. Part of the advantage of loving kindness practice is it also um, helps condition or, or dispose or, or condition the mind to be more friendly. You know, you can get concentrated on, you know, you can get concentrated, you know, on things which are not. also loving kindness is a wholesome thing. You can get concentrated on hate. Some people are very concentrated in their hate, but uh, it's not a, that's not a healthy concentration. It's, not, uh, it's what's called in Buddhism wrong concentration. It's not, it's not helpful. Okay, so it, it isn't that it produces more concentration or is, is a better tool. It has other benefits beyond concentration. The, the loving kindness. Some people, find, some people find it easier to develop concentration in there than anything else. Some people find the breath as being a little bit too subtle to work with, to really get concentrated. Breath is, is considered a little bit hard to get, to get concentrated on because the breath gets more and more subtle as you get more concentrated. Whereas with the uh, loving kindness, the phrases stay just the same, and you can kind of you don't have to go looking for them or kind of where is that loving kindness uh, phrase. Um, so it has other benefits, and um, and um, and um, yeah, it's a good thing to do. Thanks. It's, it's a very pure, it's a very purifying practice. Because of uh, you know, uh, so for example, if you do this casino, you know, you just this disc, um, you know, it doesn't that doesn't really bring up the same kind of issues that uh, loving kindness tend to bring up that you have to work through. What was it that you referred to just now? You said as the casino. There's a classic meditation practice of looking at a at a colored color disc called casino. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you're welcome. So maybe we'll end then. So thank you. I'll stay behind if you want to come up here. But so thank you very much for today.